This month on Focus Black Oklahoma, learn how one organization seeks to change the public's perception on the issue of justice in the state. Black male mentors through organizations like Men of Power are focused on making sure more young black men are seen as thriving, not as threats. Understand how members of the United Heartland China Association achieve success while promoting Chinese language education. Meet the black community in Elk City that has maintained the city's oldest cemetery for nearly 120 years. Hear Sandra Slade's account of a fun and fast cross-country road trip she made in college. The first cousin of Emmett Till, who is also a congressional candidate here in Oklahoma, speaks to how lessons from the past continue to inform the present. All this and more on Focus Black Oklahoma. Focus Black Oklahoma, sponsored by Phillips Seminary, presenting an event celebrating the 50th anniversary of Vine Deloria Jr.'s book, God is Red. Learn more at wherefaithleads.com slash lectures. is Focus Black Oklahoma. I'm Kuma Roberts. And I'm Jacob Littlebear. Most people still believe that justice must be punitive. The Restorative Justice Institute of Oklahoma seeks to change the public's perceptions on this issue using a diversity, equity, and inclusion lens. Jasmine B. Vartobi has the story. Restorative justice is an approach to understanding and responding to crime. According to Prison Fellowship International, this theory, born from finding alternatives to the criminal justice system, emphasizes crime as harm to people, relationships, and communities. In terms of responding to crime, restorative justice practice focuses on repairing the harm inflicted and on giving those directly affected the opportunity to determine what that repair will look like. The Restorative Justice Institute of Oklahoma, or RJIOK, launched in 2018, seeks to transform the retributive and inequitable culture of Oklahoma. RJIOK offers training in restorative practices designed with and for individuals, families, schools, and organizations to reduce trauma, dehumanization, and recidivism. Reverend Tamara Labak, the founder of the Restorative Justice Institute of Oklahoma, talks about the need for restorative justice in our communities, specifically North Tulsa. Um, what was clear to me is that um, there was a lot of harm already being done that needed to be addressed with a lens of DEI, and I had both things. And so it was just this marriage of, oh, I have an understanding of DEI, I know how to leverage my own identity, I know how to support people in hearing different things, and I also trained in this restorative justice model. I had done victim offender dialogue before, I've been trained in uh, community organizing, and also trained in victim offender dialogue through VORP, which is a, a wonderful organization that trains people throughout the country. Um, and I let that go for a while. So in 2018, when I had this transition, I was really wanting to find other people who were doing restorative justice work in Oklahoma. And after asking around at this conference to all these tables, it was like, nobody's doing it, nobody's doing it, nobody's doing it. And I chose restorative justice instead of transformative justice because we're behind in Oklahoma a little bit about even understanding those dynamics and the differences between restorative justice and what is now really mostly referred to as transformative justice 
with this idea that we can't really restore victims back to their original <laughs> uh, state. We have to actually transform them through this process of integrating whatever harm has occurred into their new version of their new life. Author Elizabeth Beck, in a 2012 article entitled Transforming Communities, Restorative Justice as a Community-Building Strategy, wrote, Restorative justice recognizes that the community, the individual who perpetrated the crime, the victim, and those involved with the individual are all impacted. Also, restorative justice describes the crime as a, quote, violation of people and an indication that relationships are in need of repair, end quote. In this practice, an individual's sense of belonging and self-worth is fostered and a sense of mutual care and respect between the individual and their community is established. Executive Director of RJIOK, Xavier Graves, explains his personal connection to restorative justice and learning about North Tulsa as a transplant from Texas. Yeah, I, um, previously to this work, I have been doing youth mentorship um, through the church, um, as well as nonprofits, and it's just been a passion that anytime I can find youth that's willing to let me come in their lives, I was willing to do that, especially um, black boys. And I was realizing that, like, there needs to be some people going upstream um, to actually address the issues that are impacting young black boys and young uh, youth of color. And that's when, like, you just, the, the school to prison pipeline was like, oh, this is what I want to address. Um, because so many of our youth are being, um, finding their identity and how they're treated and how they're punished. There's still this historical divide between South Tulsa and North Tulsa and um, the disadvantages and the advantages that come from being in North Tulsa. Um, so it's really just, for me, it's been a lot of listening to people's stories, um, whereas youth um, that, you know, are in their teens, they're trying to navigate the current Tulsa as they see it, or um, I was in, you know, sitting at the feet of people who've been here since the 60s and 70s and seen the transformation after, um, you know, Greenwood was trying to be re was rebuilt to a better degree, and yet still, through zoning and building highways, have been um, demolished and transformed again. You know, we're doing this work in North Tulsa, this transformative justice pilot program, and especially when we're focused on the fact that North Tulsa has been hyper policed. Um, not saying that they deserve to be policed and that crime rates are higher in North Tulsa, um, but that this is an issue that they're faced with. In 2021, data shows that more than 1,000 civilians were killed by law enforcement officers in the United States. Black men are two and a half times more likely than white men to be killed by police intervention. Communities are looking for alternatives to solve neighborhood conflicts. By centering on accountability, restorative justice aims to repair harm by creating space for both parties to communicate and address damage in conflict without police involvement. These practices originated from indigenous communities around the globe as a means of recognizing harm and reinforcing the worth and value of all members of society. How can we support you to solve your own problems and issues? All right, we're not trying to come in to say, all right, we have this secret ingredient so that your uh, community is transformed. Rather, you are that secret ingredient. And so really, how can we lift up your voice, your stories, um, your position in order to transform your own community? Yeah, I would say that our carceral state has also made people dependent upon the system. 
as in whenever there's a harm and conflict that arises, people either do one or two things generally is they call the police or they feel like there's nothing they can do, so they do nothing. Or, or they take matters in their own hands in sometimes unhealthy ways, right? And it's like, so this dependency on the system has also created this void of creativity of like, who else can I reach out to? In this pilot program, RJIOK partnered with the University of Oklahoma to study the impact of restorative justice on target neighborhoods. Phase one of this project, which wrapped March of this year, aimed to identify community stakeholders, increase community awareness and buy-in, and to review at least four community cases. The six-month pilot yielded three times the goal. Initial findings showed that the community satisfaction and engagement rose in a linear fashion throughout the study. At the core of the practice are community circles led by a trained facilitator. Phase one findings showed that the trust and rapport of the facilitator and the process are vital to positive outcomes. This work will continue to be a major focus for RJIOK into 2023. The first Facilitator Training Foundations program launched earlier in October. Interested parties should visit restorativejusticeok.org for training or community circle involvement. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Jasmine Bivar Toby in Tulsa. Sixty-seven years ago, a 14-year-old boy was murdered based on an accusation, an accusation that was deemed false at the time and then proven decades later. Emmett Till was dragged from the home of his aunt and uncle in Drew, Mississippi by two white men with shotguns, then taken to a nearby barn and tortured for hours until he was shot in the head and then thrown into a nearby river with a large fan tied to his leg to weigh him down. His surviving family members started the Emmett Till Legacy Foundation in an attempt to bring justice to unjustified lynchings and murders throughout our country. One of those family members not only resides in Oklahoma today, he is also running for a seat at the congressional table in District 5. Joshua Harris Till is no stranger to Oklahoma politics. He is the former national president of the Young Democrats of America and former state president of Young Democrats of Oklahoma. He has also worked on several campaigns to help get people he supports elected and causes he supports on the ballot. I say all the time I hate protesting, but I feel obligated to go to protests because of my family, because of Mamie, because of Emmett. I have to be there. I don't I don't have a choice, but I hate going to protests because when you're in this space where you're screaming at the top of your lungs, these chants, when you're begging for people in power to uh, be responsible, to, to listen, to represent you and your community when you're asking for the same thing that you were asking for at the previous protests. I was, I was just in, in Tulsa recently with the Crutcher Foundation, been six years asking for the same thing. Six years of repeatedly asking for the same thing. And I was like, for our family, it's been 67 years of asking for the same thing. 
And it doesn't need to be 67 years before Terrence gets justice like it doesn't need to be 67 years before Emmett gets justice. And if we can't have people in these positions, then I'm going to get involved in politics. Like, that is fundamentally why I got involved, because I, I describe politics as a foreign language. And you can either translate it to help people or you can sell that translating ability uh, to corrupt individuals to mislead people. I got tired of seeing people misled. I said, I'm going to be the person who translates to help people. And there's what you can do from not in office and there's what you can do in office. And, you know, there's all of the different races I could have ran for. But Congress is one of the more powerful but still local positions that we have where, yes, I can have the influence to do stuff nationally, but I can also come back and have conversations about what's going on with the city council or what's going on with the county. And that's what I want to do. I want to be that. I want to make that connection to the government as accessible as possible and nothing. And there's no way I can do that better than running for office. Harris Till spoke at the AMC Theater in Penn Square Mall in Oklahoma City after the private viewing of the movie Till, which opens to the public October 14th. Thank you all so much for taking the time to be here uh, out of your evenings. I don't want you to leave here upset or sad after watching this movie. Because the message of this movie is that there is a lot of work that needs to be done. We have not come nearly as far as we should have came since the events of this movie took place. But as, as we're here in this room now, after we leave here next month, next year, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. and we cannot do it by ourselves. There are a lot of other families who are fighting for justice and they cannot do it by themselves. There are a lot of, there's a lot of progress that needs to be made in this country and it can't be done if we sit idly by thinking that somebody else will be able to fight this, fight for us. There is so much strength presented in this movie. <laughs> I don't even have half of it. But I'll stand here before you like I'll stand here tomorrow, like I'll stand here next year and next week saying that we have the ability to be better than we were in the past. We have the ability to be better than we are today, but we can't do that on our own. We have to do that together. So thank you all so much for being here. Supposed to say a lot of other stuff, but we're just gonna call it a night and we'll talk tomorrow. All right. coverage of the recent shooting at McLean High School in Tulsa perpetuates the narrative that our communities are dangerous and rife with violence. Anthony Cherry shares a story about how black male mentors, through organizations like Men of Power, are focused on making sure more young black men are seen as thriving, not as threats. 
13-year-old Jason Chunu is obliterating negative stereotypes of black boys every day in North Tulsa. His parents, with support from Carver Middle School, have helped him to develop a complex, multi-layered identity that is always evolving. Jason earned a second-degree black belt in Taekwondo, plays multiple instruments and multiple sports, all while pursuing significant leadership opportunities. He serves as the co-president of the National Junior Honor Society and as a class representative for the student council. If that's not impressive enough, he is also a straight A student. What I want to give to the community is my service and my time and my best efforts. For this very reason, Jason is particularly proud of his role as vice president of a community service group called Men of Power. Why did I join Men of Power? First off, I joined because I thought it would be something cool to do because it just like sounded cool like, oh, I'll join Men of Power because it sounds fun, right? And then once I got in Men of Power, I've learned that it's not just like, oh, I joined this because I want to like, it's more about the community service and I really like that. Men of Power is a fraternal organization established by Dr. Anthony Marshall at Booker T. Washington High School. The program, developed in 2006, is designed to establish black men as mentors in public school settings. Eventually, with the support of Dr. Ebony Johnson of Tulsa Public Schools, charters of Men of Power were later formed at schools outside of Booker T. Washington, such as McLean High School and Carver Middle School. Carver's Men of Power, currently sponsored by band director Ricky Washington, aims to solidify peer-to-peer -peer fraternal bonds amongst black boys. These bonds are essential for young black men in creating social networks. Um, just seeing you know Men of Power from Booger T over the years, and I had a lot of friends that started the organization, that helped start the organization with Dr. Marshall back in 2007, 2006 at Booger T. A lot of those were my friend, childhood friends. And so just seeing the organization over the years and once I went to college and came back and knowing you know, it's still running, it's still organizing, just seeing what they're doing in the community. Once I got to Carver and found out we had the same organization, I kind of wanted to take part in it. Washington works diligently at fundraising and creating community partnerships with adult black men and professional organizations, such as the local chapter of Sigma Pi Phi, the oldest black professional fraternity, which inspires other black men to get involved. Invested black men in the community model how to collectively work to build healthier lives, families, and communities. Black male students face unique challenges that call for thoughtful interventions. They are also in need of advocacy when it comes to discipline. Black boys are more likely to face harsher punishments and suspensions than any other group. According to a 2021 study published by the American Psychological Association, 26% or one of every four black boys received at least one suspension for a minor infraction over the course of the three-year study, compared with just 2% of white students. This number does not include discipline referrals that did not end in suspensions. Suspendable infractions include things such as dress code violations, profanity, or cell phone policy violations. Post high school, black men have disproportionately high unemployment and incarceration rates. Disparate health conditions, 
and ultimately lower life expectations than other racial groups and genders. The achievement gap of black male students reflects the way schools and communities meet their specific needs. Social and academic interventions can help improve the educational aspirations of black boys and ultimately the life chances of black men. Research suggests that adult black men mentoring young black males in primary, secondary, and higher education greatly increases the quality of learning outcomes for young black males. Black men providing mentorship to younger black males helps to form a positive view of school, learning, and success in early stages of cognitive development. Dr. Lynette White is a retired administrator in Riverview Garden School District in St. Louis, Missouri. After 30 years of service, she was recently asked to return to leadership during the teacher shortage. She serves in an urban school setting with 100% free and reduced lunch. Her research and experience offer an interesting juxtaposition of St. Louis and Tulsa. I not only focus on reviewing research regarding black males in the school and the impact they have on black students, but especially those from low income areas. So a lot of these findings reveal that when you have black students and if they have at least one black male teacher by third grade, they're 13% more likely to enroll in college. And if you get two black teachers, they are 32% more likely to go to college. And if you have at least one black teacher in elementary school, it cuts the high school dropout rates of very low income black male students by 39%. And it also raises their college aspirations among poor students of both sexes by 19%. While Tulsa and St. Louis experience different challenges, Dr. White recognizes the hopes are the same, to improve the quality of education and potential life outcomes for black men. We have a uh, school here and it's called Courtney Ritter and it's a private prep school nonetheless, but 50% of the staff are all black males. So they boast a hundred percent graduation rate. And that's one thing, but the thing that sends me at all is that 80% of these students complete college. So you get 100% at a graduation rate and 80% college uh, graduation rate. And for black males, this, this is a lot. So they prepare for college as well as life after college. So even though these results might come from a private school, why not replicate that model in a public school setting with more male teachers? If we know how critical it is, I think that we should enforce this more. I think it's a win-win. Elton Sykes is the principal at Carver Middle School, located in the Greenwood District in Tulsa. Men of Power has existed on his campus for over a decade. I think it's really important for um, young men uh, in general, but specifically also African-American young males in America, uh, just to have that mentorship, to understand and to be able to see people uh, that, because Men of Power has speakers come in and from all walks of different careers and different professions. And I think it's just really powerful for our young men to see that. Because they, 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 all they see is kind of what's on TV or what's provided by the media, and so that's 
basketball, that's football, that's sports. Um, and so they they want to dream to become some of those things, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. But not everybody is going to be the next Michael Jordan or LeBron James or the next um, quarterback or running back in the NFL. So they need to have some type of uh, something in their back pocket. And I think that's why Men of Power is so special because it allows kids to see themselves in different positions and careers. Sykes goes on to explain the need for high expectations. I think our teaching uh, pool needs to look like the students that we're serving. Uh, I think it leads to just better understanding, empathy. It leads to, uh, in some instances, higher expectations for kids uh, because and, and, and high expectations for themselves because they can see that if this person can do it and they can overcome some of the obstacles that I'm facing right now, then I can do it too. One of the goals of mentorship is to challenge young men who possess unbalanced identities that overemphasize sports or entertainment or any singular part of their identity. A narrow view of accomplishment may cause students to neglect other very important areas of their lives. First, we hear from Jason Chunu, then Principal Sykes. I would say it is really important to help these adolescents because when you're like an adolescent, that is when you find out what you truly are gonna be when you grow up. I'm hopeful that our students are gonna be just fine. Like we, we sometimes have to realize that, especially in my case at a middle school, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, they're like kids. They're 12, they're 13, they don't have everything figured out. They're gonna make mistakes. We made mistakes when we were in that age group, you know, so I, I think some people forget that. And I think they're gonna be just fine. We, we need to keep them focused on accomplishing the goals they wanna accomplish, giving them plans, giving them um, uh, uh, tools to be able to accomplish whatever they want to accomplish, and then allow them to go out and do it. Uh, I think that uh, I, so I'm hopeful, and I think I, I think that they're, they're going to be just fine. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Anthony Cherry in Tulsa. With a written history dating back 3,000 years, China has one of the oldest cultures in the world. As the Mandarin Chinese language grows into a 21st century lingua franca, Chinese language programs have achieved success in Oklahoma despite obstacles like budget cuts and political and cultural barriers. Carlos Moreno spoke with members of the United States Heartland China Association to discuss ongoing efforts to promote Chinese language education. Dr. Singyin Edens has dedicated her 25-year career to teaching Mandarin Chinese and is being recognized for her hard work in Jinx and Tulsa as a nominee for the Heartland Chinese Teacher Award, launched this past spring by the United States Heartland China Association and sponsored by LingoAce, an online language education platform. Dr. Edens has taught Chinese in Oklahoma for 10 years and currently teaches at Carnegie Elementary School, Holland Hall, and runs a new independent Chinese language program with Rex Burnett, director of the East Asia Institute at the University of Oklahoma. 
So at Holland Hall, I teach from Chinese one to Chinese five. Uh, at Carnegie, I teach. We have two levels. I teach the uh, we call it higher level. I also have my own school. I started my own school called the Oklahoma Chinese Language Institute, and I teach uh, intermediate and advanced level. These programs are well loved by students and their families, but Oklahoma has struggled to keep Chinese language programs alive in spite of their great success. This is largely due to budget cuts at the state level. Dr. Edens explains that these challenges are compounded by the political tensions between the U.S. and China, which has shrunk the number of qualified Chinese language teachers available. I think that is、uh, one concern too. Especially, you know, in some schools, Chinese is、uh, treated as elective. So when the budget gets tight, electives like、uh, not only Chinese but music, other PE or sports get cut first. And the last thing is the, the shortage of teachers. Before we could、uh, invite teachers from China to teach, but right now we depend solely on the teachers pool. And、um, in in Oklahoma and in public schools, they request、uh, certificates. It's not easy for all the Chinese teachers who can teach Chinese to get certificate because they are not good at English and they cannot pass maybe some of the tests and、uh, they are not good at、uh, writing、uh, assignments to to get certificate. As a former employee at Jinx, and we heard that Jinx wanted to discontinue their immersion program. They want. They still want to keep the regular program in high school, and that's as an elective. And I think that's about it.、Uh, Jinx is a very good school district. The Chinese program there、uh, were very successful. Students pass the national test in their sixth grade. It is very rare. A lot of teachers put a lot of、uh, efforts, time, and experience there. It's so sad to see. You know the programs are fading away, but、uh, they might be thinking about、uh, reassuming it. Last year, I taught at middle school and upper school.、Uh, this year,、um, unfortunately, Holland Hall decided to discontinue the Chinese program at middle school, basically because it's very hard to hire qualified teachers. Uh, that is one of the reasons that I want to started my own school、uh, on weekends because I want to provide jobs and positions for volunteers and promote Chinese language and culture. Many of these challenges are not new or unique to Oklahoma. Min Fan, executive director of the United States Heartland China Association, describes that generations of harmful stereotypes and cultural differences between Chinese people and mainstream American culture have made it difficult for these programs to be accepted, even by Chinese families immigrating to the U.S. Fan is hopeful that these trends are starting to change, but progress is not always a straight line. Earlier generation Chinese Americans, when they came here, some of the parents tried really hard not to teach them the Chinese language, because they want their kids to assimilate as much as they can, and they discourage the language at home. It's only、uh, more recent people realize it's an important cultural heritage.
I think partly because China became a, a, a global statue. People are proud to say, yeah, you know, I'm I'm from China versus China used to be this poor country, you know, right? I still remember when people used to say, what's your name? I said, okay, my name in China is Fan Min, but in America, we switch it. So we make this mental switch coming to this country, but people used to joke about, oh, you know, how did you get a Chinese name? You throw the pots down the, down the stair, ping, pong, pong, ping, that's your get a name. Then I'll be like, okay. So I, I do think there's a, a new awareness in the Chinese American community that assimilation uh, may not be the, the, the ultimate. And I think our country is at the point where can we be part of America, but still have our own heritage? You know, whether you are from Middle East, we're from South Asia, or the African-American history, right? So I think this is a point of pride right now in learning language. And also, I think what U.S. China is going through is fundamentally understanding, can the world have two different views, right? Can the world, uh, uh, because I remember when we grow up eating with chopsticks, we say, oh, the Westerners are so barbaric. They use knives and forks. No, we use chopsticks. So that's so, you, know, you just have those um, bias. When the Chinese language program at Fan's son's school was cut, the Heartland China Association began looking at ways to support these programs in the middle of the country. My son was actually in an you know, elementary school where the Confucius a classroom would come in once a week. They would teach Chinese class. They have a Chinese Confucius classroom. The teacher would come. They're originally from China. They're hosted by the local university. They would come do the teaching. And it was, you know, it was really a free program uh, resource for the school. So when the Confucian Institute got cut, some of the local community came to us because we are known as the China resource, right? They would say, hey, you know, do you have a way to help us get this class? We really appreciate having that class. And some people say, hey, do you think you can get the foundation to fund similar things? In the spirit of appreciation of the hard work that Chinese language teachers have to do, given very few resources, FAN's organization created the Heartland Chinese Teacher Award. Three teachers from the Heartland region will be selected for the award in November and receive cash grants of $5,000. All nominees will receive a classroom supplies package for participating. Fan is hoping that the program will raise awareness for these programs. I think there's a lot of pride in knowing that this language over thousands of years old are still here for good reason. And this culture is around, despite the different governments and prayers we had, right? And it's around. So there's some there's a lot of treasure in it uh, for the world at large. What we learned so far from all the teachers. It's really heartwarming. You know, you learn about teachers actually from your Tulsa, and we actually learn about teachers in Iowa, Arkansas, and from Indiana. Many of them uh, actually not only from mainland, from Taiwan, different origin, but they all love the language and love teaching the language. So this being wonderful for us, and some of the teachers, they are just really overwhelmed that they've been recognized. Like, wow, I'm just doing something I normally do. I'm so honored. 
For Dr. Edens, the great joy of teaching Chinese is to see her students gain an appreciation for Chinese culture, an opportunity for learning that goes far beyond her classroom. She encourages her students to enter speaking and writing contests, enroll in study abroad programs, and even explore opportunities in their own backyard, like one of our students who found camaraderie working at a local family-owned Chinese restaurant. She said she's very interested in Chinese culture, food, and language. So she got a job at a local restaurant, and she, the, the best thing she said was like, I could have the food off the menu. Nobody could ever order. And in the kitchen, everybody started to, to speak Chinese to her, and the boss even sat her down to ask her to write Chinese characters. Every day, she was like, oh my goodness, it's not a working environment, it's a teaching environment. Everybody just volunteered to teach me because I was the only American there. So yeah, little things like, you know, Chinese food, big things like, you know, their own career changes are, I could help a build a career for them, for their family too. Uh, that really uh, encouraged me, no matter how hard it is right now in Oklahoma. Dr. Eden's students are grateful for her mentorship and shared their own experiences. We hear first from Luke Nolan at Holland Hall's Upper School, then Trista Wang at Jinx High School. Dr. Edens creates a classroom environment where many different types of students can thrive. She challenges us to enter contests and compete with our own Chinese learning. Last spring, she encouraged me to enter my poem, Chen Xia Chou Dong, into a national Chinese writing competition. Through her teaching and guidance, my work won first prize in that competition. She would let me brainstorm about anything and lets me write in any genre of my choice. Therefore, my writing can be from fantasy to argumentative, and the plot of my stories can also be from personal experiences or imagination. Apart from teaching me Chinese, Dr. Edens also introduces and recommends me to organizations where I could volunteer, learn from my peers, or gain experience. Many of my successes and experiences are provided by Dr. Edens. She's not only my Chinese teacher, but also an advisor to me. I can never say enough on how I'm thankful for the opportunities she provided to me since I met her. Thank you, Dr. Edens. Financial support for this story was provided by the United States Heartland China Association. For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Carlos Moreno in Tulsa. You're listening to Focus Black Oklahoma. An often overlooked aspect of Oklahoma history is the legacy of Jim Crow-style policies that were implemented even prior to statehood. Shonda Little traveled to Elk City to hear how members of the black community have maintained the city's oldest cemetery by cultivating a for us, by us attitude for nearly 120 years. Elk City's oldest cemetery sits peacefully hidden on a rarely traveled road called South Van Buren. Located on the town's south side near railroad tracks, when black people first came to the area, they were not allowed to even own the homes in which they lived. But collectively, a group of black residents bought a plot that became Evergreen Cemetery in 1903, before Oklahoma became a state. The cemetery holds the remains of multiple generations of black families and has long been a meeting spot for the bereaved. 
Evergreen Cemetery Board Director Jackie Anderson and other members of Elk City's Lincoln Edition considered the burial ground an invaluable jewel, and its relevance to their community is why they plan to always keep the cemetery privately owned. Today, many businesses have cropped up within a half-mile radius of the old cemetery. On Memorial Day, Jackie Anderson and multiple family members braved the western Oklahoma heat and wind to visit Evergreen Cemetery in Elk City. Evergreen is unique for a multitude of reasons. It's the oldest cemetery in the community, it's privately owned, and it's the only cemetery where Elk City's black community buries their loved ones. Anderson is the director of the Evergreen Cemetery Board. She and her fellow members have vowed to keep the cemetery privately owned. No offer to take over ownership and the responsibility that comes with it would ever be worth the risk. They raise funds to keep the burial costs low, sometimes offering services free of charge for those who have donated their time and money throughout the years. They keep overhead low by digging the graves and doing cemetery upkeep themselves. My aunt, uh, she wasn't my aunt, but she was like a grandmother to me. Her name was Annabelle Smith, and she's the one that actually gave me the deed because her family had taken care of that cemetery. But she told me, Jackie, one thing I don't want you to do, I don't want you to ever give this cemetery up. And what she meant was, like, other people wanted to buy that land. I don't know why. And then the other cemetery kind of wanted to take it over. But she told me, and she was 96. She was 95 at the time that she told me that. She said, Jackie, that's the one thing that Black people own in this city. Don't give it up. With many of Anderson's family elders now in their final resting place at Evergreen, her aunt Jeannie Jones is now the family's matriarch. On Memorial Day, Jones's soft voice was difficult to hear over the laughter of adoring children and whipping wind. She turned 74 the following Saturday. Jones echoed Anderson's belief that the cemetery should stay in private hands, their hands, to ensure that their ancestors rest peacefully, undisturbed, while their descendants are never denied access to their history. Jones said, quote, I was one of six kids. My father, Jack Jones, and Jenny Bell Jones are both buried there. She died first. My father could see the cemetery from his front window when he sat facing it in his chair. My parents were wonderful examples of love, and I know he found peace in his later years looking to where she laid, end quote. Jamie Kill is Anderson's cousin. Like both Anderson and Jones, Kill was raised in Elk City's Lincoln edition. He says that Evergreen Cemetery becomes more sacred to him with each passing year. The Evergreen Cemetery is a foundation that's been in my family for generations as far as I can remember. My mother's buried there, two of my my grandmothers, my aunts, uncles, great aunts and uncles. Evergreen Cemetery is a cornerstone, a meeting place for Anderson, Kill, and their family friends on every major and many minor holidays. After this year's Memorial Day and Juneteenth, Kill became motivated to begin to create headstones for the numerous ancestors buried there without one. Raised within the ever self-sufficient community of Elk City's Lincoln Edition, he learned and labored to make them himself. He started this special project with his mother's headstone. Next came his beloved grannies. Creating the headstones is a family affair. I said about two feet by 12 inches. My wife has the, the letter machine that, that cuts the letters out. 
you know, any, 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 any graphic design you want. And she applies the letters. Uh, my dad came, came, came through and helped us. And it was a good, it was a good experience. I, I, I can't explain it. Like I said, I've been wanting to do this for years for my granny and I'm trying to keep the tears right now from coming out. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Shonda Little in Elk City. There's an old proverb about friendship. As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. Sometimes being sharp means having as much fun as possible while keeping each other out of trouble. Sandra Slade recounts what real friendship looks like during a cross-country road trip in college. Boy, who can remember the song by Houdini, Friends? How many of us have them? I mean, I remember it and I play it like it just dropped. My friends are my village. They are there for support, for cries, for laughter, for pick-me-up when down, and most of all, to be honest. I am truly intrigued at how my village has been through the ups, downs, and in-betweens for me. I've told my kids on more than one occasion that had it not been for my friends, they may not be here. All of my college friends had a rule. One person was in charge of the car keys and being the adult when the others were not acting as such. We all knew that we never wanted to call anyone's mom to tell them something happened. That was a rule to look out for each other. Now, from time to time, we did have our spats, and it would be three against two or two against three, but we were there for all. Ever heard of the phrase, down like four flats? Which means if you are down by one and you have a spare, but all four ties down, you're going to need a real friend to help you with that. Two of my friends went to Georgia Tech. I went to Clark Atlanta University, and two of them went to Morris Brown and one at Georgia State. So needless to say, we had enough invites between all of us to have invites to parties all over Atlanta. One particular night, we were at Georgia Tech campus at the Omega Sci-Fi party, and my friends had decided it was time to leave. Well, the others had decided they weren't ready to leave. And as a rule, we all came together and we would all leave together. Finally, convincing the others to leave, we headed to my friend Wanji's trusted Jeep. Yes, I can hear. There were not enough seats, but we had a trunk, so we were going to be okay. Two of the football players thought we were leaving too early and decided that they would hold Wanji's bumper so we couldn't leave. What they didn't know is that three of my friends were engineering majors and knew how much force to put the pedal to the metal so that we could get away. Needless to say, they ate our dust. Even though I was a long way from home, my Oklahoma village was quite deep. We frequently would have Oklahoma roundups as a way to bring everyone together. Whether you're in college, fresh out of college, or just moved there, anyone from Oklahoma was welcome. My friend Joyce's family would come up sometimes and we would have an Oklahoma barbecue with all the trimmings cowboy caviar, and of course, the great barbecue bologna. That was a treat for one of my friends who was a Georgia native, which is very rare to find. He thought that we would be eating smoked bologna lunch meat. When he said this, we all looked at him in disgust, like, who would do that? You got to have the bologna smoked just right. And of course, the favorite barbecue sauce, Head Country, which my North Carolina friend would turn her nose up because the only thing she wanted was that vinegar-based yuck sauce, we called it. If someone from our crew was going home, we would ask to be brought back something, either a homemade dish, a Brahms burger, taco bueno, or even a Coney Island hot dog, just so that we'd have a semblance of home. For this particular Thanksgiving holiday, Joyce and I decided we would head home to Oklahoma. 
we had decided what time we were going to leave, which would always be early to avoid all the traffic and make the long trip through Arkansas before nighttime because we didn't want to get caught off in the sticks. Joyce and I loaded up my teal Geostorm hatchback the night before so we could swing by Krispy Kreme without wasting time. I mean, it was going to be a 12-hour trip. Gassed up and filled up with our two dozen donuts. Well, one dozen was supposed to make it to Oklahoma. I started off driving, and we were singing, slapping fires, thinking all the escapades we would get into, laughing about the night before shenanigans, and counting the hours till we got home. We did our usual stops in Alabama for biscuits and gas, in Holly Springs for some awesome smoked chicken wings, stopped in Memphis for gas and hot chicken. Yeah, you get a sense of the map of our trips, yeah. All about food. After Memphis, I got tired, and Joyce said she could bring us in. I felt good and started to drift off to sleep. I remember checking on Joyce to make sure she was good. Man, my stomach was full, and the warm sun made me feel so good. I felt like we were floating. I opened my eyes to check on Joyce. She was rapping. Tupac was blasting. And I noticed that the speedometer looked like it was saying 110 miles per hour. I laughed and I went back to sleep. A moment later, I jumped up and looked again. The speedometer was saying 110 miles per hour. I yelled at Joyce, what was she doing? Pointing to the speedometer, and she glanced down and said, I didn't even notice. I looked around, and we were deep in Arkansas, between Little Rock and Fort Smith. I told her, if you don't slow down, they will put us under the jail. A term I still don't understand to this day, but I remember my dad saying it. She slowed down to the correct speed limit. We laughed so much about that. That was until we made it into Oklahoma. We had been calling our folks along the way, so they were not expecting us this early. And we knew that we would be in trouble and have a lot of questions. So we decided to hang out in places we knew our family wouldn't be. But in need of gas, we headed to a quick trip way out of the way. And of course, we run into one of Joyce's brothers. I mean, she comes from a family of 11, so kind of couldn't avoid that. Her brother didn't know we were going to be home, so he was just happy and surprised. He couldn't wait to call her parents, which would have led them to call my parents, and we would have been found out. We told him we just wanted a bite to eat, so he took us to lunch, and we got him talking about the good old days. We knew he could talk and pass time. After about an hour, we told him it was time for us to get home. We hugged and laughed. We showed up at Joyce's parents like we had just got there, unloaded her things, and then I was off to my parents. I hugged them, told them it was a long drive, nothing adventurous. To this day, Joyce and I still laugh about our skyrocket trip back home. Focus Black Oklahoma is produced in partnership with KOSU Radio, Tulsa Artist Fellowship, and Tri-City Collective. Additional support is provided by the George Kaiser Family Foundation, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, and the Zero Families Foundation. Our theme music is by Moffat Music. Focus Black Oklahoma's executive producers are Karesh Ali Lansana and Bracken Klar. Our producer is Nick Alexandrov. Our production interns are Smriti Iyengar and Torin Doss. Visit us online at kosu.org, tricitycollective.com slash focusblackoklahoma, and YouTube at tricitycollective. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at focusblackok. You can hear Focus Black Oklahoma on demand for free at kosu.org, npr1, npr.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. KOSU Business Circle memberships are ideal for small businesses looking to support public radio and get a little bit of airtime. To learn how your business can become a member, email development at kosu.org.